All right, I'm going to ask you to take your Bible this morning, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We are going to break away from the series that we have been in uh, the book of Ephesians chapter 6, where we have been looking at this marvelous armor that God has given to us through Christ and through our union with Christ for spiritual success in the battle that goes on around us all of the time. But because we have decided to take this Sunday and uh, observe the Lord's Supper together, uh, I wanted to break away from that series, and so I'm going to ask you to take your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to read together verses 16 and 17, which is the text that uh, was read earlier in our, our service. So let's read together. The cup of blessing, Paul said, the cup of blessing that we bless, and by the way, that cup of blessing that we bless is an official title for a particular thing that the Jews would uh, observe at the very end of one of their most amazing feasts that God had given them. It was the fourth cup in the feast of Passover. And so that's what's in mind here when Paul says the cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the way that Paul asked that question Uh, has an implied answer, and the answer is, of course it is. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Of course it is. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And Paul's answer to that would be, of course it is. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. You know, when um, we observe the Lord's table, this wonderful gift that God gave to His church that the Lord initiated for the church in uh, John, actually it's in every one of the Gospels, uh, on the last night of His life at that great Passover feast, at the end of that feast, He initiates and inaugurates this feast for His people. Um, you know, when, when we come to observe communion, and I've been observing communion for as long as I've been a Christian, and so have you, I don't know that I would use the word feast to describe what we do. Would you? I mean, we have a little tiny plastic cup that's got about a half an ounce of grape juice in it, and a little tiny wafer that's sort of on the top of that little thing and we pull it off and hopefully don't spill half of that little half ounce of grape juice on ourselves as we open it up. And then we we pray together and we eat the wafer and we drink the the juice and then we go on. And, And there is really no way in my mind that I equate that with a feast. Because when I think of the word feast... What am I thinking of? I'm thinking of a table that is laden down with food. I I think of of people around that table. I think of festivity. I think of joy. I think of of fellowship as we're around that table. I don't think of a a five-minute or even a ten-minute moment around the table where we just sort of stand there and look at each other and then grab something off the table and eat it and then leave. I think of a time when we're all together around the table and we're laughing and we're enjoying and we're, we're, we're talking and we're sharing and we're eating and and at the end of that day we are full we are satiated you know when we take communion 
in a very real way, it's supposed to be a feast. We're going to see that here in the text this morning, but we don't think of it as a feast because we typically don't think of what we do in church as festive. When, when Paul elaborates on what Jesus established when he established this for his church, and, and, and Paul began to elaborate on this and he began to develop it for the church, he described it as a feast. In fact, in the New Testament book of Jude, it's actually called a love festival, a love feast for God's people. And Paul describes it here in this text as a time of joyful thanksgiving, that that it's to be marked by this. It's a time of relational unity that has manifested itself around the table. It is a time of genuine, affectionate love. You got a little taste of that, didn't you? When we, we took a few minutes to meet one another and to find out who we are talking to, where are you from, where were you born, how did you come to know Christ? And even in that little tiny moment where we, we talked to one another, there was a foretaste, there was a little taste of what is to come. Genuine, affectionate love. Covenant loyalty. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 11. And devoted, renewed purity to God. Paul talks about this again in 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 27 through 29. And so this morning, as we think about what we've observed, as we think about the feast that you and I know as the Lord's table or the Lord's supper, or sometimes we call it communion, I want us to look at that feast that the Lord has given to us, and I want us to make sure we don't do something that another group of people did. I I want us to make sure that we don't despise that feast. I want to make sure that we don't despise that feast. You say, is it really possible to despise communion? Is it really possible to do something like that? And the answer is yes. And Paul warns the believers about that in the text that we're looking at this morning. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to give you the background to what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians. And we're going to look at the background in terms of the immediate background, what was going on at Corinth. And then we're going to look at the background in terms of the Old Testament background that Paul is going to point to. And then I want to make four observations. All right, can we do that together? We're going to move fairly quickly together, so I want you to kind of have your Bible open, and, uh, and let's, let's, let's kind of look at this and make sure that we take the admonition that God has given to us. So let's begin with the immediate context in mind, and those would be the religious feasts at Corinth. Corinth was a city, as you know, very much like Ephesus, and it was a city full of temples. And the temples housed the gods of the city. Each temple uh, represented a dwelling place of a particular god, uh, and that god was important uh, to the prosperity, the protection, uh, the identity of the city and of its inhabitants. And so because the gods were so much a part of city life, every citizen paid special attention to the gods. They would honor the gods at all of the public events of the city, all of their private events, all of the events that punctuated their private lives would be marked by some reference to or honor of or appeal to one or more of the gods. They would elevate their names, they would appeal to their favor, they would invoke their presence, and most of the major events of life 
things like a wedding uh, or the, the purchase of a new home or anything like that would be marked by a particular feast held at a temple often uh, and uh, particularly a temple to the God whose favor they were invoking. Because the last thing you wanted to do was to offend the God whose favor you were appealing to. And so they would have a feast. And in the normal course of your life as a citizen of Corinth or a citizen of Ephesus, you could expect to be invited regularly to come to the temple and join one of your friends or one of your families in one, or family members in one of these feasts. And when you showed up to the feast at the temple, you were involved in a communal event. And what you would do at that feast is you would honor that God. You would come together with other people and you would join them in the honoring of that God. You would acknowledge by your presence and your participation that God's power to protect or that God's ability to do evil in the life of someone. And therefore, you wanted to be at this feast because you were appealing to that God not to do evil, but to do good to the life of the person who was honoring them with this feast. And you were acknowledging before everyone at that feast your agreement, your solidarity, your partnership with everybody around that table in the honoring and in the appealing to this God. And this went on day after day, week after week, month after month, and you could expect to be invited to scores of these feasts. And to not come to a feast that you were invited to would be like not coming to a wedding that you were invited to of a close friend or a family member. It would be noted. And there would be a cost. But if you came to a feast like this, you were expected to participate, not just in the festivities, but in all of the revelry that went around a feast like this. It almost always involved sensuality. It almost always involved carnality, and often it led to ritual immorality. And this was your life. So if you were a Christian at a place like Corinth and you got an invitation like this, it was a very difficult thing. Because you didn't all of a sudden, when you become a Christian, move away from Corinth. You continued to live in that city. You continued to have relationships. You continued to have the same family who, who continued to worship all of the same gods you used to worship before you became a Christian. And so here you were, and now you were a Christian, and, and so what do I do with all of this? What do I do when I get an invitation from a family member? What do I do when I get an invitation from my boss, and I'm expected to be at a feast, at a temple, honoring a God that I no longer worship and I no longer believe is real? What do I do? And Paul is going to give them an answer to that at the end of this chapter. And the answer he's going to give to them is a very, def- a very defined one. He says to them, you cannot go to those temples and you cannot participate in those feasts because feasts are just not feasts. They're not just feasts. There's more to the feast than the food. And so 
as you kind of look at how Paul is setting this up, he's going to say to these Christians, now, that's the background out of which you're coming from, but there's another background you need to think about. There's another group of people who are just like you. In fact, you are now in their spiritual lineup. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, so he's talking about Christians, that our fathers... Don't run over that word too quickly. The fathers that he's talking about, if you just keep reading, are the people that you read about in your Old Testament who were Israelites. Now, the people at Corinth did not have an Israelite background. They were Gentiles. And Paul is saying to them, now listen, when you became a Christian, something happened to you. You changed families. You became part of a whole new community of people that you used to not have any part of. Remember as we were walking our way through the book of Ephesians and we came to chapter 2 and we noted that the status of a Gentile in the eye of a Jew was this. You are an outsider. You have no part in us. And Paul is actually saying, actually, you have every part in us Because you have the same spiritual heritage. You are not just brothers with one another. You have the same spiritual ancestry that all of the people had in the Old Testament. And everything that God gave to them now belongs to you. And God had given them seven amazing feasts. You can read about these feasts in the Old Testament, but really where they're detailed most clearly is in the 23rd chapter of the book of Leviticus. And these seven feasts punctuated the yearly life of every Jew. No matter where he lived in the world, these feasts brought every Jew together at the same time for the same reason. There were three feasts in the spring, and the most important of those was Passover started their year in the unleavened burst fruits, followed by a spring feast. So you had your, 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 uh, your, your early feast, the spring feast, and I'm sorry, followed by the summer feast. And the summer feast was the feast of, uh, of uh, weeks. And then you had the fall feasts. The, the, you know the feast of weeks, by the way, is the feast of, of Pentecost. And then the fall feasts were the trumpets, Feast of Trumpets, sort of announcing the end of harvest and the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Booths. And all of these seven feasts were to be observed together. The entire nation would come together at a central location, the temple in Jerusalem, at specific times, three times a year, commemorating God's redemptive activity for the nations. Paul says, now look... The feasts that you used to have at Corinth, you now have a whole different set of feasts that come right out of the Old Testament. And and those feasts were marked by joyful celebration. 
to God. They, they were marked by grateful thanksgiving. They were marked by corporate, relational, and genuine affection for one another. Twelve tribes coming together as one nation. And, and they were times for covenant renewal where you are reminding yourself that the God who made promises to, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob about bringing them into a land and giving them a place to worship has fulfilled those promises. You're in the land, you have the city, and you're at the temple. But that's not all. Because the feasts also point to the coming of someone, the coming of Messiah. You say, well, Pastor Sam, what does all this background have to do with with communion? Well, here, here it is. Those pagan feasts have been replaced by a different heritage. You have a whole different heritage. And just like your old heritage had feasts, This heritage has feasts, but these seven feasts have all been replaced by one feast, by one table. Those seven feasts for Christians, for the church, have been replaced by this feast because those seven feasts were all looking forward to the the coming of a person who's already here. And that's why when we read Paul's statement about communion, he talks about a backward look where we look back to what Christ has done. But we are to remember this until he comes again. There is a forward look to this. And so for a Christian at Corinth, all of the feasts that went on in his city or her city had been replaced because they were now in a different heritage, and all seven of those feasts had come together now to be replaced by this amazing feast that you and I observed this morning that we call communion. Now, how is it that Paul is looking at a group of people who are looking at that feast And they are taking that feast in such a way that they are about to bring devastating judgment on their heads. They have been removed from all of the old feasts of their life. They have been brought into a line of amazing feasts and they have actually had the fulfillment of what those feasts were supposed to do in the coming of the person of Christ, and they have been given an invitation by him to sit at a different feast, the feast that you and I just took. But they're about to be judged. In fact, by the time you get to chapter 11, Paul says, in fact, that's why some of you are are sleeping. That's why some of you have fallen away, because you have not taken this table well. So that's what we want to do Briefly, let's look at four things, I think, that'll help us to take the table well. And number one is this. As we come to the table, we we need to see the beautiful picture that it paints for us. We need to appreciate the beauty of the table. And the beauty of the table in verse 16 and 17 is found in the word participation. Participation. You know that word differently. It's the word fellowship. It's the word koinonia. And, it, and it's not just the idea that we get together and we have a good time together. It's the idea of belonging. It's the idea of partnership. It's the idea of union. 
There is a participation, there is a union that every one of us have with Christ and with one another. And it's described this way in the scripture. This participation means things. It means this. It means you have a full share in the family identity. You have a full share in the family identity. You're not an outsider to the family. You are now an insider. And we saw that in verse 1, where Paul looks at these Corinthians who are Gentiles, and he says, now wait a minute, your identity has changed because God has brought you in to his covenant people, and you now have a full share in that. You have a full share in the family identity. You are a full partner in the family mission. Everything that God intends for his family to do for his glory, you have a full part in that. You aren't just sort of relegated into the front porch area or the back porch area. You are brought right into the very heart of the house of God and you are given not just a full share in the family identity, you are made a full participant in the family mission. And then Paul says, you have been given a full stake in the family inheritance. You know what the inheritance is? You are one day going to rule over the earth with Christ. And you have a full share in that. So this is an amazing picture of common spiritual identity, uh, of common spiritual heritage, and of common spiritual community. And what brought us all together was a food that we ate. How did we get in the family? How do we get this heritage? How do we go from being outsiders to the ultimate insiders? How did we get this common mission? How in the world did we come uh, to a place where we were given full rights to this amazing inheritance? And the answer is, you ate a common food. You ate a common food. What kind of food? gives you this kind of wealth? What kind of food gives you this kind of status? What kind of food gives you this kind of an inheritance? And the answer is, the food and drink that Jesus Christ provided for you when he broke his body for you and he shed his blood for you. That's the food. You think, as you remember back to the feasts that are going on in the temples of Corinth, you look at all of the pageantry and all of the revelry and all of the beauty of those feasts and all of the finery and everybody's there in their finest apparel and it's loud and it's joy-filled and there's all kinds of stuff going on. And then you come to somebody's house and there's this bread and this wine. And you look at that and you look at that, and you want to know how in the world is this better? Or you look back to even the feast that the Jews had three times a year, and they would go to Jerusalem. All of them would stop everything, and they would make their way to Jerusalem, and on their way, there would be camaraderie, and there would be the singing of, of the national hymnody of Israel, and, and there would be fellowship. And when they got to the temple, they would be awed at the magnificent structure of the temple. How in the world is our little feast at our little house remotely like this. 
And Paul says, you're missing the beauty of that feast. Because this feast does for you what none of those feasts could ever do. Those feasts that you observe at Corinth, when you finish those feasts, they lead you right to idolatry and they lead you right to immorality and their end is devastating destruction and death. And those feasts that the Jews celebrate, they, they, uh, they, they have already been fulfilled in the person who has come in your midst. And the reason those feasts are empty now is because the Jews who observe those feasts to this day refuse to accept the identity of the one to whom those feasts point. And so you have been given an invitation to an amazing table that does amazing things. But... <clears throat> This beautiful picture also needs to be accompanied by a sober warning. Look at the warning in verse 12. And the warning is this. Let therefore anyone who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. There is this warning that comes. The warning of falling under divine judgment. The communion meal that we take together is a reminder of the immense sacrifice that God has granted, or given rather, to grant us this standing and to give us this inheritance that waits for us, to make us part of the status that we have as his people. What could possibly go wrong when we have the kind of salvation we have and the kind of Savior that we have and the kind of invitation to a table like this? What could possibly go wrong? How could people possibly go wrong who've been baptized into Christ and granted familial rights to eat and drink at a table like this? What could go wrong? And Paul says, a lot could go wrong. And if you don't think the danger is real, if you don't think the danger is real, think about another group of people that you're now related to. Think about what happened to them because they were just like you. They had a common spiritual identity. They, they had a common spiritual experience. They enjoyed the common spiritual provision of, of supernatural food. The food at the table you're eating, the bread and the grape juice or the wine, that is supernaturally provided for you. It's not magical food, but it is food that came from more than natural means. The food that you're eating at that table was provided for you by God. And God provided food and drink in the wilderness for your ancestors. And and here's the term in verse 5. Look at verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. And the evidence of this is that he overthrew them in the wilderness. He literally strewed their bodies in the wilderness. So here's the warning for us as we come to a table like this. It's a beautiful table. And it's amazing when when you think about what God did. But the warning is this. Don't assume that your place at the table protects you from the judgment of God if you despise the table. So that brings us to the third thing we need to really ask, and that is this. So how did these people despise the table? What's the biblical example of God's people despising his table? 
And that's really what he does in the first part of chapter 10. Look at, look at the first part of chapter 10. Here's what they had. <clears throat> look at what they had. They had amazing things. They had five wonderful blessings. They had corporate unity. They had spiritual deliverance. Our fathers were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They all were baptized into Moses. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. Don't miss the word all. It's talking about this unified group of people who all had the same experiences and the same blessings, and they were identified together under the same leader who was leading them out of bondage into freedom. They're just like us, Paul said. They're just like us. They had a leader that they were united to. We have a leader that we're united to, Christ. That leader took them out of bondage. He redeemed and released them from their slavery. That's exactly what Christ is doing for us. And that leader led them through common experiences, just like we're going through common experiences. They were in a wilderness. We are in a wilderness. They weren't at the land yet. We're not at the land yet. We're in the wilderness. And God provided spiritual food and drink for them. And and God is providing for us spiritual food and drink. And by the way, it was God because you can see in verse 4, they all drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock in the Old Testament is God. And Paul is saying to them, I want you to know which member of the Godhead it was. It was Christ, the same member of the Godhead who set this table for you. They had an amazing reality. But what did they do? Look at verse 5. They were overthrown in the wilderness. And in verse 6, these things, what happened to them, took place as examples for us that we may not desire evil as they did. You know what they did? They craved and coveted evil things. God had given them an amazing new status. He had given them a wonderful leader that was very different than their old leader, Pharaoh. Moses led in very different ways than Pharaoh did. And, and, and they had a completely different experience. Even in the wilderness under Moses, they were free, whereas in Egypt under Pharaoh, they were in bondage. And God had given them provision and protection, food from heaven, manna, and water from the rock. But they despised the provision God had given to them. In Numbers chapter 21, verse 5, this is what they said to Moses. Moses, we hate this food. We loathe it. And they were talking about the food from heaven. So what did they want? They wanted everything that they had before. They despised everything that God had given to them now, and they wanted everything that they had before. Verse 7 through 11, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to, to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. 
Moses, we are tired of being in the wilderness. We're tired of the tents. We're tired of the march. It's been forever. I mean, you were supposed to take us to this land of promise where everything was going to be awesome. There was going to be milk. It was, I mean, the, the land was going to be so plenteous. We, you were describing it to us as a land full of milk and, and, and flowing with honey. And here we are, and we're in the desert, and it's the same food every day. Manna, 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 and more manna. And we're sick of manna. We loathe it. So what do you want? I'll tell you what we want. We want the kind of of imagery and pageantry that we miss in Egypt. I mean, the Egyptians had these amazing temples and they had these amazing statues of their gods. And so we we want that. And while Moses, at the very beginning of the journey, was up in the mountain fellowshipping with God face to face, they were down there telling Aaron, Aaron, we want, we want an image of our gods. And and so here's our gold and here's all of our precious stones. And they fashion a golden calf. And they commit idolatry. Their discontent with the prohibition of false worship led them to commit immorality with the pagan women of Moab. In fact, it was so gross and such a horrific violation of what God did that, that in one day, 23,000 of them uh, fell, and, and probably another thousand after that. Numbers 25 tells that story. They despised the food and the water and demanded that he give them a different food, a food that they wanted in Numbers 21.5. And they grumbled and rebelled against God and against his leaders. And this went on and on and on. If you read the book of Numbers, 13 different times in the book of Numbers, they mount a rebellion against God and against his leaders because they are sick of what God has provided for them. They don't like his worship. They don't like his restrictions. They don't like his leaders. They don't like his provision. And they're not really even happy with his presence. And so God gave them what they wanted. Psalm 106 says, but he sent leanness to their souls. And that's why Paul says now, as you think about what you're doing with this table that God has set for you, don't despise it. Don't don't think about the revelry and the pageantry that goes on in the temples around you. And, And don't make the mistake that your ancestors Israel made when God provided spiritual supernatural food and drink for them. A Corinthian might say to Paul, well, we're never in danger of that. And Paul says, now, wait a minute. Let him that thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. And then he says this. No temptation has taken you, but such as is common to man. This is the common lot of God's people. God's people in the Old Testament struggled with despising the table God prepared for them in the wilderness. And God's new people, the people of the new covenant who are in their own wilderness, on their way to the Father's house, are going to have the same temptation. They're going to be tempted to despise the table. But God has not given 
you a temptation that you can't bear. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape. So here's really the fourth and the final thing, and that is this. There is a divine deliverance for all of this. And and part of that is is this. It's coming to understand that God is telling us the truth about our own heart. He's telling us the truth about our own heart. You know, when we come and we sit down at what the Lord has prepared for us that's, that's sort of symbolized in this table, we're in the wilderness and we could say to the Lord, Lord, you know, actually, we had it better before we were Christians. We just had it better before we were Christians. Or it was better before we repented and got serious about our Christian life. It was better I look around at my my unsaved neighbors and they have it better. Their life is better. They don't seem to have the pressures that I have. They don't seem to have all of the stuff that goes on in their soul like I have going on in my soul. It seems better. And so when I come to church and I hear a message like this and I sit at a table like this and I think about all that's going on around me in the lives of people that don't even know you and don't even follow you, it seems better. Isn't this what Asaph said in the Old Testament? When I looked at the prosperity of the wicked, it almost destroyed me. And that's true. I mean, when you show up at work on Monday and you're hanging out with your friends at the break room and they're telling you what they did this weekend, the parties they went to, the stuff they did, all the, 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 the stuff that God told them not to do that they did that seemed so fun to them. And you look at your weekend and it was full of tiredness and pressure and you're going, God, why in the world am I doing this? You're sitting around and you're listening to your coworkers, and they're the ones that get promoted. And because you took a stand for something that you didn't want to do, you're the one who all of a sudden isn't getting promoted and you might actually not have a job. And you walk out of there and you're going, I'm not sure it's better. I mean, I hear Pastor Sam I listen, I get it, I, but I'm not sure it's better. And Paul says, now when you're there, there is a way of escape. And the escape is this. It's the Lord. He's your escape. He's your escape. There isn't a sin you've committed. There isn't a temptation you faced. There isn't a broken dream you've wrestled with. There isn't a lost hope you've struggled with that the Lord has not promised to restore. And here's the point. You say, yeah, but pastor, I come and it's this little juice thing and it's this little bread thing. and Yeah. No, 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 no. That's just now. Remember, we're in the wilderness. We're on the way to the feast. We haven't arrived yet. This isn't the feast. I mean, it is the feast, but it isn't the feast. 
This, this is just the momentary reminder that we have on a regular basis of the massive feast that is coming. And when you get to that table, you're going to be going, oh, it's like, like Thanksgiving on Thursday. What do you do like on Wednesday? You know Thursday's coming, so what do you do on, on Wednesday? You do something, and it's not to lose weight. It's to make room, right? Whatever you do on Wednesday, you're not doing it because you're like, oh, I got to. No, no, no. You're doing it because you know if you fill up on five guys on Wednesday, and then you go down, and you hit, you hit Panera, and then you go buy Dunkin' Donuts, and then you hit Krispy Kreme just to be equal partnership and not offend either, right? You know, and then uh, you, you get up in the morning early and you go to IHOP, you know when you get to that table, what's going to happen? You're like, well, you don't know me, Pastor. No, I don't know you, but I know me. If I fill up on Wednesday, by the time I get to the feast, I can't eat. And so you know what I do? I know Thursday's coming. It's just like, you know, starvation rations. I'm eating a breadstick and a carrot on Monday. Is that it? Yeah, that's it. Breadstick and a carrot. Tuesday, it's just a carrot. Because Wednesday, I'm eating everything in sight. And you know what? This table that looks so little, it's just a precursor to the feast. And when you sit at that table and you look around at the people that went to their little feasts, and they're not there, you're going to say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for the help. Thank you for the way out. May the Lord help us. And you know, we get to do this because it reminds us of that feast. And, and so what do we do with the feast? We, we celebrate it. We thank God for it. And we do something else. We renew our commitment. We renew our commitment. God, I know there's a feast coming. But before then, there's work to be done. There's a mission to accomplish. And so, Lord, as I go from this feast and I'm on my way to that feast, would you strengthen me? Would you cleanse me? Would you encourage me? as I recommit to the fight. Lord, thank you so much that we can come before you and celebrate this feast that doesn't look like a feast until we think about it. Lord, as we have observed it and taken it, Lord, we ask that it would do its work in us. We realize that the bread and the the juice that we don't have any magical properties. That's not what gives what we did today its power. There is something supernatural that happens when your spirit, through that table, re-energizes us and casts our vision again on the fact that we are a part of your family. You have made us full partakers of the mission that you have for your son and your glory And you have made us full members and given us a full share of the inheritance that is his. So, Lord, we thank you. And we ask that you would help us to live in light of the table. In Jesus' name.
Amen.